Revelation chapter 2, the Apostle John, through the Gospel of John, tells us to believe. Believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. To believe in the only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Then in 1 John, as we're studying it Sunday mornings, he says, be sure. Be sure that your faith is in Jesus. Be sure that you are walking in the light. And then the Apostle John, then, in the book of Revelation, says, be ready. Be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Believe, be sure, and then finally, be ready. Be ready. And we've been studying over the last few weeks the letters to the seven churches here in the book of Revelation. And we studied from the church of Ephesus, the loveless church. The loveless church where Christ saw their works, their labor. But he said, this thing I have against you, you have left your first love. Then we went and studied the church of Smyrna or the persecuted church where the Lord was encouraging them. Saying, you're going to go through trials. You're going to go through tribulation. You're going to go through suffering due to your faith. But do not fear. Do not fear. In fact, he said, don't be afraid. But now today we go from the church of Ephesus to the church of Smyrna now to the church of Pergamos, the compromising church. If you like taking notes, write that down as the title of today's message, the compromising church. The letter to the church of Pergamos was addressed to a church that was drifting. It was addressed to a church that was drifting into compromise into a church that was drifting into worldliness, into worldliness. And this is a huge problem even in the churches today because the world wants to come and to enter into the church. And because of the pressures that we have in society and the culture, the church now tries to become more like the world than to become like Christ. And we start to now compromise our biblical values or our biblical worldview. And we must protect our biblical worldview so the church remains pure. I mean, it's been said before, people who always bend backwards to please everybody soon weaken their spine. I'm going to say that one more time that you would receive it. It would say people who always bend backwards to please everybody soon weaken their spine. And that is the case in this church. You see, we are not called today, here, right now, to connect to the culture. (laughs) We are called to connect to the Holy Spirit. That's the word of God tells us. To connect to the Holy Spirit. But unlike the contemporary churches of today, the seeker-friendly churches, Unlike those churches, the Bible doesn't hesitate to condemn worldliness as the serious sin that it is. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, what did the Apostle John say? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is three types of lusts, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, 
But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. Do not love the world. Do not love those things in the world's system. Do not love those things in the world's system. Do you remember Paul, as he was writing to Timothy, he spoke of his co-laborer, Demas. And he said this, For Demas, having forsaken me, having loved this present world. He turned his back on me because he loved this present world. Many people ask, well, what does compromise mean? The compromising church, what does this mean? Well, the compromising church or to compromise means to make an agreement or an acceptance, notice this, with anything lower than God's standard or God's will. An acceptance now or to tolerate anything lower than God's perfect will for your life. In short, it means to put God second, to compromise. There was a great preacher, John Blanchard, that said this, it is perhaps the greatest sin of the greatest number of Christians that in so many details of life, they put God second. They put God second. And notice this, if your life is filled with compromise, you will never grow. You'll never grow. That's why it's so important to learn from this church. We're at Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. It says this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says, He who has the sharp two-edged sword. Would you underline that? The sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. Did not obey, deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask right now, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, in regards to compromise. Lord, that we're able to make a stand. Lord, because if we're, our lives are filled with compromise, we will never be able to make a stand. So I ask, Lord, that we would stand against the wiles of the enemy today. That we would stand against the strategies of Satan. And Lord, that we would not be filled, Lord, as people who make agreements with the things and the systems of this world. So, Lord, reveal to us that in our life that needs to change in Jesus' name. And together we would say, amen. Now, we notice very quickly that if our life is filled with compromise, not only will we not be able to make a stand, but we will never grow. <laughs> and we're going to see three major things in only five verses. Number one, the approval. Number two, the accusation. And then the admonition. 
We like taking notes, write these down, the approval, the accusation, and the admonition. Now it says this, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write. This is the approval. To the church of Pergamos, this is the message to that church, to the pastor of that church, and a little background of the church of Pergamos, or introduction and history, it's that its name means in Greek, citadel. It's citadel. It is the ancient capital of the province of Asia, now Pergamos, 16 miles east of the Aegean Sea. It's in now modern-day Turkey, and it still exists as a city today. In fact, the name is Bergima, the name of that city. And the city at the time was noted for a center of culture and a center of education. In fact, they had the greatest library of the ancient world with more than 200,000 volumes in its library. Now, it's very impressive now considering that they had no printing systems. And here in Pergamos or in Pergamum, which was the church of Pergamos, was the center of four main gods. The idolatry here was heavy. They had a temple to the god of Athena. They had a temple to the god of Asclepius. They had a temple to the god of Dionysus and the temple to a god of Zeus. But the heavy emphasis there was to the god of Asclepius. And this is the god of healing and the god of knowledge. The god of healing and the god of knowledge in his place. In fact, the insignia of this god, Asclepius, was the insignia or the icon that we may recognize today in the medical world, which is a staff, and around that staff is a serpent that is wrapped around that staff. Today it's used in the medical world still. Now it's an icon that, that would signify the worship to this God. And all that to say that this was a church in the heart of Satan's territory. <laughs> in the heart of Satan's territory. And notice it says in verse 12, these things says he who, uh, who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now here John is speaking of the attributes of Christ. And in Revelation chapter 1, we know that he got a revelation or a vision of the Lord. And he saw that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 1.16 says this, he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, it's very important that we realize why he says, he says this, he who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Because here Jesus now is going to confront now the church with his word, and they're going to feel the sharp edges of the word of God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is living and it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of the soul and the spirit. And to the joints and marrows, it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What does the sharp two-edged sword represent? The word of God. And Jesus would use the sharp two-edged sword, his sharp two-edged sword, to make a separation among the Christians in Pergamos. Now, how would he do that? Well, he does it with the two edges. A lot of times we read this verse and we don't truly understand why it's called a sharp two-edged sword because it is a twofold ministry that the word of God has in our lives. In fact, it speaks on one edge of the power 
of salvation, and it's an instrument of salvation for our lives. One edge. But the other sharp edge, you know what it speaks of, of an instrument or the power of the word of God as an instrument of judgment. So it's, a, it's an instrument of salvation, but also it's an instrument of judgment. At one edge, it's separating us from sin to be now unto the Lord for eternal life. But the other edge, it comes down with a judgment to separate us from God for eternal judgment and separation. And here the Lord is speaking now from his sharp two-edged sword to convict the church with the truth of the word of God. You see, oftentimes, you know, you see the churches of today, they do not have conviction. They lack conviction because they lack the substance of the truth of the word of God. Only in the word of God do we find ourselves as people of conviction. And notice what he says here in verse 13. I know your works. This is a word of encouragement. He who has the sharp two-edged sword says, I see what you are doing. I understand that you are going through suffering. I understand that the church is going through heavy persecution. I see your works. Hebrews 6 verse 10 tells us this, for God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love which you have shown toward his name. God sees what we're going through. He notices the trials, the tribulation, the suffering, and where we are in our spiritual walk. So here he's saying, church, Pergamos, I know your works. But not only do I know your works or what you're doing or what you're going through, notice what it continues here in verse 13 and how he says it. I know where you dwell. <laughs> I know where you live. You live in a very, the very place where persecution is taking place. Is I know where you dwell, verse 13, where Satan's throne is. You're living at the very place where Satan's throne is or at the stronghold now of the enemy. Pergamos here because of the four temples on the high hill of Pergamum given over to idolatry was known at that time, at this very time, as the headquarters for satanic opposition for the church. They were living in a very heavy place. In fact, what he's saying, he's saying, the Lord is saying, Satan's authority and power are honored there and they're openly in effect. I know that. At this present time, the Bible calls Satan the God of this world. This is why it says where Satan's throne is. You'd ask yourself, why is Satan's throne here? Well, because he is the prince of the power of the air. He rules now in this world in our sinful fallen nature. Now we know he's not always going to rule this world. We're going to be raptured one day and then we're going to come back with Christ riding on horses to conquer and rule and reign here on the earth and the enemy is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. But here right now he rules this age. In fact, Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, who's mine, the God of this age the power, the stronghold that Satan has on this age. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul then says, in which he once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. What is the point here? That the world is his throne. And here now in our text, it was once centered 
in Pergamos. So now he says, I know your works, but the, later on in verse 13, it says, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. What does that mean, you hold fast to my name? You have remained loyal to me in spite of the opposition. <laughs> you have remained faithful to me in spite of, now, the persecution. You've refused to drop incense on the altar and say with your lips, Jesus is Lord. We've talked about it in the last few weeks that during this time, the churches were under the heavy persecution of the Roman emperor and they would all have to go and on the altar, drop instances, Jesus, Caesar is Lord. And they would receive a certificate of their allegiance now and their political now allegiance and loyalty to Caesar. This is the very thing that Christians would not do. So what does it say here? I know you hold fast to my name. You refuse to deny me. In fact, it goes on and it says this. And you did not deny my faith. You hold fast to my name. You hold on to my name. And you refuse to deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Again, where Satan dwells. Now he says, I know that you're holding fast. I know you're not denying me. You're refusing to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful martyr, or witness one of them who gave his life for the Lord and for his faith. And that's why it speaks to us here, a martyr. What is a martyr? Those who give their lives for their faith. Even in the moment when you saw one of your leaders die for their faith, you did not deny my name. I see everything that you're going through. Now, Antipas, as we see his name here, we know that he stood against the attacks of all the evil around him in that pagan world. In fact, he fulfilled the meaning of his name, Antipas, because his name means against all, against all. He withstood now the persecution of those that came against him in his faith. And notice this, yes, he died for his faith, but he died with hope. He died with the hope of eternal life. Many are the men and women that have gone before us in church history that have an underground church or in different places of the world have refused to deny the name of Jesus Christ and have died for their faith in honor and to glorify the Lord even at their death. Many. History tells us of John Noyes, a man that was tied to a stake and a post. As he was tied to that stake and a post with different martyrs and those that would be being burnt alive due to their faith. He was there tied to that post and it said that John Noyce, before they lit them on fire, he was kissing the stake before his life was taken from him. And, and he exclaimed with a loud voice, blessed it be the time that ever I was born for this day. Then he said to his fellow martyrs, we shall not lose our lives in this fire, but we shall change them for something better. We shall change them for something better. Here Pergamos saw a faithful martyr. And they had not been stopped due to fear. Notice here in this church, fear was not the problem. In this church, fear was not the problem. The problem was compromise. And oftentimes we are so bold, but what good is it to be bold if we're not holy? Holy. 
Did you know that boldness without holiness is arrogance? Our boldness should always be followed by holiness. Because if it's not followed by holiness, it's simply just arrogance. Notice what he says. Not only is there an admiration, but then there's an accusation. You have been doing these things well. But I have a complaint against you, Pergamos. Yes, one of you gave their life for me. But I have an accusation. I have a few things against you. We need to settle accounts right now. And I'm going to do it with a sharp two-edged sword. Now notice what happens here in verse 14. It says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Because you have there those, a complaint against the church. You have accepted those who God does not accept, sin. You have there those. Now, when we read that verse, you know what we understand? That there those speaks of a small group. It wasn't everyone. It was a group only. You have there those who tolerate or to accept now and teach the doctrine of Balaam. What was the doctrine of Balaam? You remember back in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, the the king of Moab, his name was Balak. And Balak went to this prophet who prostituted his gift of prophecy for money. And he went to Balaam and he said, Balaam, I want you to put a curse on the nation of Israel. So Balaam was willing, but he was unable because God did not allow him to curse the nation of Israel. He protected them. And he went back and he said, I'm unable to curse them, but I know how you can defeat them, Balak. That you would only have the women, the Moabite women, the women in your nation, that they would come and seduce the men, that they would now be given over to seduction and lust, and now be given over to sexual sin, with the Moabite women, which the Lord says that they ought not to intermarry. And then later on, because of that sexual sin, they were going to be given over to the pagan feasts and idolatries. So what was the sin and the doctrine of Balaam? The doctrine of Balaam was for God's people to marry unbelievers, and it would draw them away from their faith. The sin of Balaam. Now, this what, what took place was that as they would marry those unbelievers, the Moabites, they would accept their worldly lifestyle and their tendencies. This is why in verse 14, it would say to put a stumbling block. What was the stumbling block? The women. <laughs> it would stumble them. Not only that, that sexual sin that would take place, it would say to eat sacrifice or eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual sin. They prostituted their gifts. Now Balaam... Now you see the seduction that was taking place. And here in Pergamos, a similar seduction was taking place. Now we have to understand something. That even as we live in a pagan world, we must remember that we are not of that pagan world. That we may, we may be living in Babylon, but we're not of Babylon. Yes, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Regardless of how heavy the pressure gets in our world. Do you remember Daniel when he was taken captive to Babylon with his friends? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? In fact, they, they put a platter and a feast before him. And it, the Bible tells us that he knew that those, that food was offered up to idols. And what did Daniel do in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8? He purposed in his heart. He said, there's no way 
that I'm going to defile myself with a portion of the king's delicacies. I purpose in my heart to have self-discipline so that I don't compromise. There are sometimes, even in our lives, if we would put a, a, a beautiful spread, we won't ask where it came from. We'll just dive deep and let's eat. Let's have a feast. <laughs> but not Daniel. What did Daniel do? He said, I'm going to purpose in my heart. I'm going to have self-discipline so that I do not compromise. He was in a pagan world, but he understood that he was not called to worship those pagan gods. What does the Bible say? A little leaven leavens a whole lump. All it takes is for a little bit of sin, a little bit of compromise to come into your life, and then the enemy has a stronghold. A moment of pleasure will cost you a lifetime of misery. So it happened here that the church of Pergamos was accepting the doctrine of Balaam. And the compromise was, number one, idolatry. And the compromise was, number two, sexual immorality or sexual sin. But now here they have the doctrine now, or they hold in verse 15, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. <laughs> now, Nicolaitans, what that means, it was a group of people, and that word Nicolaitans, it was after Nikolai, who it means to rule over people, Nicolaitans. And what they would do, these teachers would lord over the people, and instead of leading the people now to the Lord, they would lead people to themselves, and they would have a heavy yoke of bondage over them. So the Lord said, you're accepting that, which I do not accept, and I hate this. Now, he doesn't say, I, I accept it, or, or I think that we can put up with this. Notice, which thing I hate. If we love God, we ought to love what God loves and also hate what he hates. You're accepting those that are putting others under bondage, and you refuse to exercise church discipline because you want to be non-confrontive. We have to be very careful that we are so scared of confrontation that we begin to compromise. Because we're too scared of who we're going to offend. Now you notice what happens here, the Nicolaitans. It was a group that was saying, you have to come to us to be right with God. Be careful when you start to hear people saying, you know what? You have to come here in order for you to be saved. Or you have to be baptized in our waters in order to be saved. It's a heresy. It's a false doctrine. It's a false teaching. So what he's saying here is you have not honored the word of God the right way. You're tolerating, number one, idolatry. You're tolerating sexual immorality. And you're tolerating heresy or these false teachings. You know what this does when we compromise and we tolerate any type of sin in our lives? We begin to water down the truth. We begin to water down the truth. And you know what happens to our lives? We have no more power. Because you can't speak against something that you're guilty of. You can't stand for the truth when there's compromise in your life. And that's where the enemy has a big war on truth right now. On truth. If the enemy cannot destroy you, notice what he's going to want to do. He's going to want to deceive you. And that's why we have to have a high view of Scripture and be in the Word of God always to know that the, this is the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Now notice, as they're committing spiritual fornication, these people in Pergamos, they were facing the temptation to achieve personal advancement. They were tempted by it. If they would only, by ungodly compromise, acquiesce to the pressures of the world. You know, as a group or as a congregation, as a church, as an individual Christian, any compromise with the world just to avoid suffering or to achieve success is committing spiritual adultery. And that means of being unfaithful to the Lord. So we have to be careful when we receive an opportunity or we are tempted to shy away from persecution just to now receive advancement in our personal gain or success in life. We have to be careful when, when we compromise now with the world in order to find pleasure today, but then turn our back with the Lord, on the Lord. What did James say in James chapter 4, verse 4? He said, adulterers and adulteresses. This is what he called the church. Why? Because some of them were compromising at the time so that they would not be persecuted. And notice what he says here now. Do you not know that friendship with the world is an enemy with God? Don't you know that you've made yourself an enemy of God? In fact, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot be a friend with the world and be right with God. You can't do that. What did Jesus do? He drew the line in the sand. You said, you're either with me or you're against me. You either gather with me or you're scattering with me. You cannot serve two masters. You can't serve the world and also serve Christ because your heart's going to be divided. And too often times when we allow compromise, we're saying we want to serve God, but we also want to serve the world or we want to accept the worldly tendencies in our lives and that to the Lord is not honoring. He does not tolerate. He will not accept it. And notice this, he will not let his children get away with sin. That's why we have the admonition here in verse 16. Not only the admiration, the accusation, but also now the admonition. And five out of the seven churches, the Lord tells them to repent. Five out of the seven churches, he says, repent. This was one of them. And to repent means to turn away, to do an about face, to turn to the Lord. This repent, this change, applies to all of us even right now. Repentance is not only something that you do once, but it's something that as you carry your cross every single day, we have to ask the Lord, I want to repent from the flesh. I want to continue to turning to the Lord today. And notice as it says here now in verse 16, repent or else. <laughs> this is not one of the verses that we normally highlight. What does it say or else? This, this reminds us that, that, that here Christ is serious about this message. The church here will ultimately be in trouble if they ignore what the Lord is saying. We will be in trouble today if we ignore what God is saying. We cannot ignore what he's saying in his word. So he says here, repent or else I will come to you quickly. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. <laughs> Repent quickly because I'm going to come and I'm going to fight against you with the sword of my mouth. God's word would have cut deep to them. And notice this Antipas, the faithful martyr, may have felt 
the sword of Rome, but the church of Pergamos would feel the sword of Christ, the double-edged sword coming from his mouth. And here the judgment that he's speaking about is not a reference to the Lord's return, but it's a present judgment that he's speaking about that comes to the church when it's disobedient to the word of God. See, every time when we think as a church, we think of judgment, we think that God is going to judge the world. And we say, Lord, we're standing back. Judge the world. We're the church here. (laughs) Go ahead and judge the world. And that is true. God will judge the world. But before he judges the world, he's going to judge the church. In fact, it says in 1 Peter 4.17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. <laughs> and if it begins with us first, what will be the end to those that do, not obey the God, that do not obey the gospel of God? You see, we will be held accountable to the truth of the word of God. God is going to judge us based off what we knew in his word. And today we can't walk out saying, well, I didn't know that it was sin. Yes, you do. We just went over it. <laughs> We can't say we're going to tolerate it because I simply didn't know. We cannot walk away spiritually ignorant. You know what we must do? We must receive. Receive. Listen and receive. Verse 17, it says this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You have an ear? Then listen to this. You must listen and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Holy Spirit is speaking to Pergamos. You've even had a martyr's Pergamos, but you are compromising in these areas. Receive the message that the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. It's not, notice this, it's the word of God. It's not about entertainment. It's about the word of God. It's about receiving that. It's about receiving the truth of the word of God. That we would have ears for the spirit, not ears for the world. Did you know that the Bible says that in the last days, the love of many is going to grow cold and some are going to have itching ears? That people are going to just want to hear something that's going to be so sensational that they're going to crave in their ears, well, I want to to go to that church over there because they tell me everything that I like. I was talking to a young man one day and he said, you know what, I love going to this church. I stopped going to that other one. Every time I went there, I left and I I felt leaving bad. But then I go to this church. I feel pretty good about myself when I leave at this church, you know. You're not coming to church to feel good. And you notice you're coming to church to receive the truth of the word of God. To receive the truth of the word of God. So he who has ears, let him hear what the spirit of God is saying. Notice what it says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now here's a promise now. To him who overcomes. How can we be overcomers today? You know who's an overcomer? Those that put their faith and trust in Jesus. Those that believe can become an overcomer. In 1 John 5, 5, it says this. He who overcomes the world. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes. He who has faith that Jesus is the son of God. He who has faith that Jesus is is the son of God. You are called an overcomer, not just a conqueror, but a more than conqueror through Christ who loved us. He who has faith in Jesus Christ and overcomes the world will receive here the promise and the reward 
for overcoming, for faith in Jesus, comes threefold. <laughs> Number one is hidden manna. Number two is a white stone. Number three is a new name. The promise comes threefold to those that overcome. Number one, hidden manna. Number two, white stone. And number three, a new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him the hidden manna to eat. This was the reward for faithfulness. What is the hidden manna that God wants us to eat? Now, the hidden manna here, he offers it to us so that instead of eating those food that are offered to idols, instead of sitting or having a place at the table of the world, you can eat of the manna that comes from the word of God and that comes from Jesus Christ. In fact, he said himself, God promised us true spiritual bread. Do you remember in the Old Testament when God gave them manna in the wilderness years? Well, now the Lord is saying, now I am that manna. I am the bread of life. I am the substance. In John 6, 35, he says, and Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But notice, only he who overcomes can partake of that bread or of that hidden manna. Why is it hidden? Because it's only available to those that believe. And what is it? It is Jesus himself. And as we put our faith in Jesus, we can receive our substance or we can feast off of his holy word, and off of Christ. That is our reward, Christ Jesus, the hidden manna, the bread of life. But he who overcomes will also receive a white stone. A white stone. This was noted to be almost as a diamond, a white stone. And in John days, during this time, a white stone would signify acquittal. If you would go to the court system and you were charged of something to be guilty to pay for someone, if someone came to you and said, you know what, I'm paying for your charge, I'm paying for that guilty sentence that you have, you were then acquitted now of that charge and, or those legal charges and then given a white stone which would signify acquittal in contrast to be given a black stone that would signify judgment. <laughs> To him, to him who overcomes, God's going to give him the bread of life, who is Jesus. And to him who overcomes will receive now the acquittal that comes from our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not only this, the white stone also would signify in that time, in that Roman custom of awarding white stones to victors in the athletic contests. So just imagine of an athlete in an athletic contest, they were given a white stone as a sign of victory or of winning now. And on that white stone was inscribed the athlete's name that served as a ticket for him, that white stone with his name now, to a special awards banquet now. And he would use it as a ticket or a passport into now that feast. So in this view, as we look at the white stone, Christ will promise us, us that overcome an entrance into that eternal victory celebration in heaven if you believe in Jesus. Amen. But not only that, notice what he also offers. The hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name. Some of us here 
are so desperate for a new name, the new name that is in Jesus. And it says this, a white stone and on the stone a new name written when no one or which no one knows except him who receives it. No one's going to know this name except him who receives it. We won't know the name until we receive it, and that name is only going to be between us and the Lord. Now, in the Bible, if you study names, you understand that when God gives someone a name, it is in that unique relationship that he has with that person. It has to do with who we are in Christ. So he gives the person a name. And we are in Christ in heaven. He's going to give us a new name, a unique blessing that he has for us forever. It says that no one's going to know it because it's going to be so intimate between us and him. A new name that no one knows what that name is, just us and him. You know what, what the Bible says about the name is that he's going to have that name almost. And he's going to put his name on you. He's going to put his name on us. And he put, when he puts his name on you, you know what that means? It signifies ownership. Ownership that you, we belong to him. That we belong to him. Why? Because we put our faith in Jesus. He's given us a new name. Not only does the Bible say that he wants to give us a new name, but if you put your faith in Jesus and you want to be an overcomer, the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then we live a life fully given over, fully given over to Jesus Christ, where we say no to compromise, no to sin, no to idolatry, no to sexual sin, no to heresy. And say, Lord, no longer, no longer do I want to accept what you don't accept. No longer do I want to receive that which you don't receive, Lord. My life is fully dedicated to you at the altar. What does Romans 12 say? That you would not be conformed, but that you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what's that perfect will of God. Church, I want you to know something. The only thing that you have to prove to the world is the perfect will of God. The perfect will of God. So if you're here today and you're saying, I need to put my life back on the altar. Because it says anyone who is in Christ, the only way to be a new creation is if you're in Christ. If you're in him, if you're walking in his will, walking in his plan, and maybe today you want to say, I want to be in Christ. I don't want to compromise. I don't want to allow this in my life. I no longer want to allow and accept this sin in my life. I want to be in Christ. And I want to have his blood cover me of all my sin as it would say here to Pergamos in, in chapter 2, verse 16, repent or else. I'm going to come and judge with a double-edged sword. If you want a white stone instead of the black stone, <laughs> saying today I want to be acquitted. I want the acquittal that comes at the finished work of Jesus when he cried out on that cross to tell us that it is finished, you are forgiven. Then I want you to stand on your feet right now and saying, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I want to follow you. I don't want compromise anymore. I don't want to allow this in my life anymore. Lord, I need you. Just stand right there on your feet because we want to pray for you. And God wants to do a new work in your life and it only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And you say, Lord, I need you. I can't do this alone. I can't live in this world with the pressures of this world by myself, thinking that I am going to finish well without your hand. But I no longer want to accept sin in my life. I'm tired of dealing with these things. So we're going to sing this song. Lord, I need you. And as we sing, I want you to just stand right where you are because we want to pray for you. We're saying, Lord, I need help in this area of my life so that I can follow you fully and completely. Just stand where you are right there on your feet. We're going to pray for you.